I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. Thank you.
Sarah Churchwell is Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of East Anglia. She is the author of The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, writes regularly for The Guardian and The New Statesman, and often appears on TV and radio discussing arts, culture and all things American. Her latest book is Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the interview today. So Sarah, thanks for talking to me first of all. Looking forward to it. Let's talk first of all about the era, I guess. Let's talk about the 1920s, because we tend to view the 1920s from a sort of modern prism through. There's a number of myths about the era, not least ones that have been brought about by adaptations of The Great Gatsby and the like. So um, let's talk about what that world was really like, I guess specifically, because you know, there's lots of different areas of America and different ways in which they were different. But what was life in the 1920s like, I guess, for our heroes, for aspiring <laughs> writers trying to get into that society? Ooh. Well, I think you're, I mean, there, we do have an awful lot of myths about the 1920s. And one of the things that I had fun with as I was researching this book was that I shared those myths too. So it was a process of discovery for me. It wasn't the case that I already knew you know, the things that I subsequently found and set out to write a book to reveal them. It was through the process of research itself, I kept stumbling on things and thinking, well, this isn't right. And so it kept uh, it kept surprising me and, and occasionally slightly blowing my mind, the, the stuff I was finding, because we all have, as you say, from particularly from film adaptations, we all have these preconceptions and these ideas about what the world looked like in particular. And, and I was really interested in trying to, I was trying to create in my book as kind of novelistic a feel mm-hmm. as I could without ever straying into fiction. And so I was doing a lot of research to try to find out what were they really wearing so that I could describe, you know, the clothes so that you could get that kind of a feel. What were the cars really like? What were the drinks really like? Because in Prohibition, of course, we have lots of myths about Prohibition. And what I found as I was, what I did was start to read the newspapers from the 1920s was a kind of obvious way to start to find out how it all really worked. And the novel The Great Gatsby is set in 1922. And mm-hmm. so I was particularly looking at newspapers and, and other kinds of archival material from precisely that year, from 1922. And one of the first things that struck me when I was reading just the old issues of the New York Times and other New York newspapers was that they used, um, and of course at this point it was still too expensive to reproduce photographs very mm-hmm. often, so the, for the most part they used line drawings, pen and ink and, and pencil drawings. And I was just flipping through the papers looking for other stuff and I suddenly it suddenly dawned on me that the images that I had been looking at, the women's dresses, were all much too long. <laughs> and they were all ankle length. And I thought, wait a minute, this isn't right. And I actually, I mean, I remember looking again at the date of the paper and thinking, have I got that? Am I looking at the right year? Have I just lost my mind? Because it looked much more like what I imagined from, say, 1918 mm-hmm. than what we picture for the 1920s. I, like everybody, I pictured women with knee-length skirts. But it turns out there was a very strange thing that happened, which is that in 1920, the year that women got the vote in America and the year that prohibition was passed, skirts did fly up to the knees very, very quickly. And it was very daring, and it was all this kind of you know spirit of abandon. But then they dropped right back down again. Mm-hmm. And by 1922, they had only raised a couple more inches. And so basically, Fitzgerald later called it the first abortive shortening of the skirts. <laughs> um, that there was this sort of impulse to shorten the skirts, and then it was like it was like they'd gone too far as a society, and they were like, no, 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 that you know must back down again. And so they they dropped the skirts again. And when he was writing The Great Gatsby in 1924, um, skirts had still only risen a little bit higher. 
higher. They were sort of mid calf. So our image of these women mm-hmm. with their knees bared and their and these flapper skirts that's all much later in the 1920s. It's actually all post the Gatsby world. And so when we picture Daisy and Jordan mm-hmm. in the Great Gatsby, we ought to be picturing women in ankle length dresses. So I thought, well, that was a surprise. And then things like and and actually I found it really interesting watching Baz Luhrmann's film adaptation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the film adaptations, and he certainly did a film about 2013's conceptions of the 1920s Mm -hmm. rather than trying to do something historically accurate about the 1920s. And so, for example, you know, we think that the cars were really fast, but in Mm -hmm. fact, the cars weren't that fast. They weren't, I mean, they were still pretty rudimentary. They'd only been around for kind of 10 years at that point. And they just didn't go that fast. (laughs) That all of New York wasn't, they didn't have neon signs yet. There wasn't electricity all the way through the city. It was a mix of electricity and coal fires and gas. And so it was a much more old-fashioned world than we sometimes think it is. Mm -hmm. And the Charleston hadn't been invented. And the Charleston, that's another one that I found that really surprised me. And that one I did actually notice that it wasn't in the novel. And I was going through the novel really carefully and I, I, you know, for the umpteenth time. And and I thought, wait a minute, you know, he never actually mentions the Charleston in the novel. And I thought, can that be true? And luckily I have a, computers make our lives so much easier. I have a searchable version of Gatsby now on my laptop. And so I thought, all right, I'm just going to double check that I didn't miss it. Because of course, you know, human error is very real and I can't make some kind of, you know, sweeping assertion that it never appears in the novel if in fact it's there and I just managed to miss it. And then I did a check and, it, and sure enough, it is not in the novel. And then you think, okay, well, is it just that he's, you know, made a choice not to mention it and, you know, there could be all kinds of artistic reasons why he wouldn't want to do that. So then I started researching it and what I first did, as I think, you know, most scholars in my position would, I mean, I'm a, I'm a literary critic. I'm not by training a social historian and so I was kind of, as I say, I was kind of rediscovering this stuff for myself and inventing it, you know, as I went. And so I first just went to try to find a kind of history of modern dance in America. And so I found a couple of those in the library and they said, uh, they gave slightly varying dates. One of them said the Charleston was 1923. One of them said the Charleston was 1924. And I thought, okay, well, that's because I'm trying so hard to pinpoint what was happening in 1922. That's enough of a discrepancy for me that A, Mm -hmm. I want to know when it really did become a dance craze. And B, I want to know if indeed it's definitely categorically (laughs) post-1922, but could Fitzgerald have known about it when he was writing the novel in Uh 1924? So these are the kind of pedantic little questions that exercise my mind. And, uh, but I got very interested because I wanted to be very exact. And there was a kind of pleasure in that and making, trying to say, okay, I, I want to be, uh, to have total precision about this where I can and really try to pinpoint the facts. And so, as I say, I saw these dance histories that kind of gave different dates for it. And so I thought, all right, again, I'm going to go back to the source. I'm going to go back to the papers and I'm going to see, because it was such a dance craze mm-hmm. that clearly they will be talking about it when it happens. And so I was looking and looking and I could find nothing in the New York Times from 1923 or 1924 about the Charleston. And of course, searching for the Charleston is not very much fun because you keep calling up Charleston, South Carolina. It's actually very difficult to you know, be definitive about it. But I kept looking, I kept looking. And then finally, in the summer of 1925, so of course, The Great Gatsby is published in April of 1925. And in the summer of 1925, the New York Times started writing about this dance craze that had been sweeping the nation mm-hmm. that summer called the Charleston. And I thought, can it really be that late? And then I, I was also checking The New Yorker, which began in 1925. So by once you're post-Gatsby, I can start to use The New Yorker as well. And they also, that same summer, talked about this this new dance craze that had been sweeping the country that summer. So regardless, and of course, as, as with so much jazz in the 1920s, it was originally a black dance mm-hmm. from the South that is migrating and becoming mainstream. And so it does seem as if Pache, these other dance histories, the dance may have begun mm-hmm. um, and been danced in very 
various parts of the country earlier than 1925. But as far as I can tell, both the New York Times and the New Yorker are under the impression that in the summer of 1925, the Charleston has suddenly started sweeping America Mm -hmm. in a way that it hadn't been doing before. So I think that's when it actually started, after Gatsby was published. So there is a very good reason why nobody is dancing the Charleston (laughs) in the novel, which is that Fitzgerald hadn't even heard of it yet when he was writing it. Let's talk about what the... What was the literary world mm. like at that time? As we go through this book, we'll be paralleling Scott Fitzgerald's own life to the writing, you know, to to his mm. writing work. So let's talk about some of his contemporaries. Mm. It was actually a very exciting time for American writers, and it's one of the things that I tried to trace in the book. And again, something that really emerged from my reading of the newspapers, as it became clear to me that there was really a conversation that was happening precisely that year, and that American writers were very self-consciously becoming aware. Of of the sense that they were coming into their own, Mm -hmm. um, that American literature as a field of artistic endeavor was coming into its own. And for someone like me who's been, you know, studying American literature for some time now, and there are these, there are kind of, what's the word I want, um, like milestones and, and literary landmarks in the evolution of American literature. And one of the really important ones was an essay that Henry James wrote at the turn of the century about basically about American culture, America not having any culture to speak of compared to Europe. Mm -hmm. So as of the turn of the century, Americans still have this real sense of inferiority and this sense that they are this very new raw nation that has not yet developed any literature worthy of the name. Mm -hmm. And there's maybe a book here and a book there. And um, Moby Dick hasn't really been rediscovered yet at that point, though they rate Hawthorne and and they rate some of Melville. Um, So there's a sense that, you know, there've been some good kind of writing writers along the way, but that overall there isn't this sense of, of a robust American literature worthy mm-hmm. of the name. And in the early 1920s, that starts to change, and, and partly because of modernism, partly because of America's preeminence after the, or, you know, sense of its own preeminence after the war, all kinds of reasons, but it really just starts to come into its own. And so Fitzgerald and his contemporaries were very actively engaged in a conversation through the papers, through the magazines, and indeed in their correspondence with each other, in talking about this sense that American literature might be something, that they might be doing something interesting, and that in fact the American century was at hand. They had this sense that it was that it was about to come. And so people like um, Fitzgerald's friend and uh, and kind of literary mentor, uh, Edmund Wilson, mm-hmm. who went on to become the ominous grease of American uh, letters throughout the 20th century, but also a forgotten figure who I found very interesting as I, again, who kind of emerged for me through my reading of these conversations, who was the literary editor of the New York Tribune, a man called Burton Rasco, Mm -hmm. who was friends with the Fitzgeralds for a time and who was himself a very influential critic. And as I say, people remember Edmund Wilson and still talk Mm -hmm. about what an important critic he was, but Burton Rasco has really dropped out of the conversation and I, he's really only a footnote at most in any biography or story about the Fitzgeralds. And I became very interested and what he was saying because he was very interested in the question of this emerging American literature. And so they were just very interested in the question of whether American writers were writing books that Europeans were going to need to pay attention to. And they had this real sense that they were starting to become uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with. In what sense, beyond the, the obvious fact that they're written by Americans probably about America, what were the things that were starting to be uniquely identifiable as mm. an American literature at the time. Well, this is exactly what they were asking themselves, <laughs> is to say, okay, if we're going to claim that this is American literature, what is it that makes it American? 
And as you say, it starts to beg questions about what it means to be, what the definition of American is going to be. Mm-hmm. And since it's an immigrant culture, that becomes very kind of complicated. And, and what does it mean to be authentically American if that's already a smorgasbord? You know, mm-hmm. So how do you actually talk about that? And what interests me about that is it seems to me that that context makes a very interesting Fitzgerald's decision to make The Great Gatsby a story about all of America. Mm-hmm. That there's a sense in which he knows that in order to write this story about modern culture and the jazz scene and, and all of the kind of the, the chaotic life that he sees around him, that part of the way that you stake your claim in the literature at that point is, and he's one of the first to do this, to start to make claims about this being the meaning of America. And of course, then he has that famous, uh, you know, peon to America at the end of the novel. And so I see that as being as being something that's very much in conversation with these questions. None of them really answered that question mm-hmm. to their satisfaction because it's not an easy question to answer. It's something that we still talk about. And when we do American literature, what makes it American? Except, as you mm-hmm. say, other than that it happened to be born within the, you know, the confines of the United States. That's a legal technicality. Uh-huh. So at one point, the, the question, I think, becomes, you know, a, an easy way to answer it which is not anywhere near adequate, but certainly any book that is grappling with the question of the meaning of America mm-hmm. is going to take its place in that conversation. And I think that they had a real sense that that was what was starting to happen. In particular, though, they were also very interested in the ways in which American books were no longer seemed to them, much less to be aping uh, European, particularly mm-hmm. English novels, that they were looking to more American stories, they were looking to more American characters, that, that stories were being set in the American Midwest, that people were trying to use an American vernacular, writers like Sherwood Anderson, Mm -hmm. who were actually trying to find ways, instead of writing in some kind of artificial and very, what they might have considered, you know, highfalutin way, to say, okay, let's actually think about, let's think about the American vernacular, let's think about idiomatic and demotic language. And of course, Hemingway, who isn't yet on the scene, right? I mean, Hemingway is an aspiring writer at this point, but he doesn't really burst onto the literary scene until after Gatsby. He's 25, 26 is when he starts to really make his his presence known with authority. And um, Hemingway later makes this very famous statement that all of modern American literature can trace its roots back to Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. So that is something that has become a kind of truism for people talking about American literature today. But yeah. we forget that when Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby, that statement had not yet been made. And Hemingway always liked to present himself as a little bit more original than he was. So they were all talking about the vernacular. And so I don't think that Hemingway's wrong, but that he's very much in keeping with a trend there, which is to start to think about the role that the vernacular, that an American vernacular, both in the sense of, of the idiom, but also the broader sense of a vernacular as, you know, a national style of, of whatever that cultural style might be. So the vernacular in every sense is kind of making its way into American literature for the first time. Let's introduce then F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald then. Mm, Let's mm. talk about, right from the beginning, who they were. My book, as I mentioned, is very much focused on 1922 because that's the year that the novel is set. And at that point, Scott and Zelda had been married for two years Mm -hmm. and they were already celebrities. So they met in 1918 when he was stationed in Montgomery, Alabama. She was a Southern Belle and he was a lieutenant in the army. He actually uh, never was sent abroad. The war ended before he saw any live action. So they, but that was when they met and they fell in love and then they got engaged and Zelda broke the engagement. There are different accounts as to why she did that. Fitzgerald certainly believed that she did so because he was penurious and he wasn't going to be able to support her in the style to which mm-hmm. she intended to become accustomed. And um, that was certainly his belief, and it, and it continued to be his belief, although others, uh, her friends and, and supporters, 
defended her and said it wasn't quite that mercenary, but that she was just worried that they wouldn't actually be able to make it. Anyway, whatever her motivations were, she broke off the engagement and it spurred him, as broken engagements have spurred people before, to prove himself. And so he went off and he rewrote a novel that he'd been working on in the army. And he spent the summer rewriting it and called it The Side of Paradise. And at the end of the summer, he found that uh, Scribner's, which was one of the most um, prestigious publishers in America, was going to publish his book. And his book came out in April 1920, and it took America by storm. It was an absolute cause celeb. It was a huge success story. It sold a lot of copies. He made a lot of money off of it, and it made him an instant star. He and Zelda got married seven days after its publication. And so they were honeymooning as the book was kind of, you know, hitting the stands and selling out. Uh, it was selling like hotcakes. And um, in fact, its first printing sold out in 24 hours. So the word of mouth was insane and everybody wanted to read it. And suddenly Scott and Zelda, who at the time were 24 and 20 years old, mm -hmm. so they were really young. And they went from being totally unknown, completely anonymous young people to being celebrities. And they were very beautiful. They both liked to drink, they both liked to party, and they started to have an awful lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And so their escapades and their antics, um, they also had a real sense for what we would consider kind of modern media and PR and self-marketing. They were branding themselves in real kinds of ways. And so they understood that they could draw attention to themselves by behaving in quote-unquote wild ways. And so they used to do things like they'd go to the theater and they'd start stripping, you know, taking off their clothes. Or, you know, he danced in, in the fountain in front of the plaza and she dove into another fountain in New York. And, and all of this stuff was was good copy and so it made them it made them celebrated but it also of course made them seem a little bit silly to some mm -hmm. people so in one sense they were trivializing themselves uh, or risked trivializing themselves and his book was seen as a popular novel which I think is very important for people to remember when they come to Gatsby because we now see him as such this you know revered and canonical figure and as such a serious writer but he was not seen as a serious person by his contemporaries mm -hmm. but his artistic ambitions were very serious and they were very real and so he wrote this side of paradise and then he was writing magazine fiction to pay the bills, um, commercial magazine fiction. These were these kind of frivolous stories, but they were very successful and people really liked them. So he was really this kind of, you know, overnight sensation. And then his first collection of short stories came out at the end of 1920 called Flappers and Philosophers. And then only a little bit over a year later, he finished his second novel, The Beautiful and Damned, which came out in early 1922. And then a collection of short stories called Tales of the Jazz Age came out at the end of 1922. So in the space of two years, he'd written two novels and two short stories collections. It was at that point that he started thinking about his third novel, which would become The Great Gatsby. And at the end of 1922, he and Zelda returned to New York. They'd actually gone to the Midwest for a while. And they came back to New York and they started the parties that he would later immortalize in Gatsby. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and this week I'm talking to Sarah Churchwell about her book Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. So Sarah, we've just left Scott thinking that he's going to embark on his third novel and as you mentioned before, now we look back on him as being, you know, one of the exemplars of American fiction. At that point, he was seen very differently. But he was, although as you've already mentioned, he had pretensions to be an artist himself, 
even further than that, he decided he was going to do something different with The Great Gatsby, didn't he? Yeah. He wrote to his editor, Max Perkins, a letter announcing that he wanted to write something new, and he underscored new. Um, he wanted to write something new, extraordinary, and beautiful, and intricately patterned. And that letter has rightly, I think, been seen as this recognition in his own mind, this determination in his own mind, that he was going to demonstrate that he was a real artist, and not just a, you know, a purveyor of commercial stories. And yet, at that point, what this new, intricately patterned, extraordinary, beautiful novel was going to be remained to be seen, and yet he's starting to think along those lines. And But yes, his contemporaries uh, saw him primarily as a satirist. Mm-hmm. That was what he was known as. And so much so that even in The Beautiful, which I always think is kind of funny, I mean, it's poignant and, and kind of funny, The Beautiful and Damned is a tragedy, and, it, and it's a tragedy that he wrote very much in what's called the naturalist vein, in mm-hmm. the vein of a Dreiser or even a Zola. It's that, that notion that social determinism can destroy people's lives. So he was really trying already, even with The Beautiful and Damned, he was starting to try to, to write something serious and tragic. But partly because earlier aspects of that book are indeed satirical and because his tone was often flippant, but also partly because he was so categorized as a satirist that a lot of people, including Edmund Wilson, thought that the ending of The Beautiful and Damned, which he really wanted to be this great tragedy, they thought it was satirical. They thought it was a parody. So it was as if he couldn't get anybody to take him seriously, even (laughs) when he tried to be serious. And that was something that he was acutely aware of. Even people like Edmund Wilson and his friend John Peel Bishop, the three of them had been friends at Princeton, and both Bishop and Wilson were better educated than um, Fitzgerald, who took a haphazard approach to his studies. Um, Bishop and Wilson were much more serious about their education as young men. Fitzgerald caught up later, but as a young man, he was pretty frivolous and he didn't really, you know, he didn't work very hard. He didn't study very hard. He played very hard and uh, he worked hard at his writing, but he didn't work hard at his studies. And so they, Bishop and Wilson, liked to tease him um, for, you know, being ignorant and, you know, for this writer who hadn't actually read anything and what was he, you know, what was he talking about? And even they didn't understand until much later that his ambitions even though he was yes he wanted to make a lot of money and he wanted to write commercially successful fiction and he liked being rich and famous but he also he really wanted to do something that was artistic and serious Mm -hmm. and the novel that eventually became Gatsby was from the beginning conceived of as his first great attempt at real art. In this section I want to talk about The Great Gatsby and the writing of The Mm. Great Gatsby and as you do in the book parallel that with the lives of Scott and Zelda and what was going on around them at the time and what you do in the book if we can perhaps follow that pattern is you talk about Scott's outline list Mm. to the plot that was written after Mm. the book was published in a copy an old copy of Andre Maru's Man's Hope Mm. so tell us about that list first Mm. of all and then we can perhaps go through Mm. some of the points in it. Well, there's a book called Man's Hope that Andre Malraux wrote in... Uh, it was first published in November 1938, and Fitzgerald died in December 1940. And at that point, um, jumping ahead in the story, this is where it all gets very sad, by that point, um, his star had completely fallen. His life had really fallen apart. In 1930, Zelda had a terrible mental breakdown. People still argue about exactly what was wrong with her, but and, and some people try to say that she wasn't really ill and that it was just, you know, society or her husband or something, you know, that drove her crazy, which is not to take mental illness this very seriously in my opinion mm-hmm. she was seriously ill and although she was diagnosed at the time as schizophrenic some people think maybe now uh, that she actually had bipolar in a sense and I don't mean this dismissively at all in a sense it doesn't re- now that she's dead and we can't treat her it doesn't really matter what she had as long as we recognize that the mental mm-hmm. illness was very real mm-hmm. and she had to be hospitalized and she spent the 30s in and out of um, mostly in hospitals and sanitariums and at the same time Fitzgerald's alcoholism spiraled out of control 
and his writing in the Depression, basically he was so much associated with the jazz age in the 1920s that as soon as the crash happened and the Depression started, he was instantly passé, and suddenly he couldn't get anybody to publish his, his work, and, and he started to fall out of fashion and out of favor very, very quickly. So by 1938, he was really, as he wrote to Zelda, he was a forgotten man. And he had published Tender as the Night in uh, 1934, and it didn't do very well. And he was trying, at the end of his life, to write another novel called The Last Tycoon, at least that was its working title, about Hollywood. And he wrote in many letters around that time that he was trying to go back to the mode of Gatsby in mm. this novel, uh, in The Last Tycoon, because Tender as the Night had been a departure in, in various important kinds of ways. So it's as he's thinking about The Last Tycoon, but therefore ruminating on Gatsby and thinking about what he had done 15 years earlier, that he grabs a book that as I say, was published, so he, he, he must have done this sometime between 1938 and 1940, uh, and, but we don't know when because he didn't date it. And he picks up this copy of this book, and in the back inside cover, in the flyleaf, he jots down a list of, uh, it's a, a list of nine notes, and they are the uh, at least some of the historical and biographical sources for his nine chapters in Gatsby. Mm -hmm. And it's a very partial list, and it's a very, uh, it's a very personal list. He doesn't seem to be writing it for posterity, he's just jotting it down, and it seems it's an aid memoir. I mean, it seems as if he's using it to remind himself of how he got to Gatsby mm -hmm. so that he can do something similar with The Last Tycoon. It's a, an outline list that scholars have known for a long time, but nobody ever really does very much with it. You know, kind of a footnote at most. And, and I was very interested in it, but because I wanted to try to tell the story of the... I described this book at one point as the biography of a book. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of trying to write the biography of The Great Gatsby. Where does it come from? And so it seemed to me as if, given that Fitzgerald does give us at least a partial list of some of the historical and biographical sources for the chapters. And the point is, is that, therefore, that he's acknowledging those very cheerfully. So although some people think it's an illegitimate exercise, to be interested in the sources of fiction as if you know fiction can only stand completely on its own and yet Fitzgerald was perfectly happy to acknowledge what those sources were and he never pretended that he hadn't been drawing on events and incidents and people around him he was reworking it of course he was and he mm -hmm. was reimagining it and I'm not suggesting that, that The Great Gatsby was a true story that would be um, a <laughs> deeply silly thing to say but it's also to me it's actually equally silly to pretend that it had no relationship to his life mm -hmm. when even he was uh, kind of happily acknowledging to anyone who asked that Gatsby was based on a bootlegger that he knew and that uh, Jordan Baker was based on a, a golfer named Edith Cummings and, and that Meyer Wolfsheim was based on a, on a gangster called Arnold Rothstein. And he was just kind of, he, was, he didn't have any problem admitting that. So why should we create this kind of artificial construct in which, as if it will somehow harm our appreciation of the great Gatsby, if we admit that there was anything so distasteful as actual history and actual, I mean, it's ridiculous. Where, where does an author get his ideas from? I always love um, Kurt Vonnegut on that was asked where his uh, ideas came from and he said Cincinnati, which I think is really funny. So in a sense, Fitzgerald was just jotting down this list of where some of his ideas came from. It's not by any means a total list, but I thought that it would be a way to start to move the story between fact and fiction. Mm -hmm. And that was what I wanted to do, was to try to... Another way of describing this book is to say that it's a book about context. It's a book about the importance of context. And so to try to create a different context, a different frame around which we could put The Great Gatsby and by hopefully it reframing it, 
with the actual facts instead of our misconceptions and our myths and our kind of, you know, blurry dreams um, and our film adaptation ideas and actually say this is what the world was really like insofar as I was able to, that that would give us, hopefully, as I said, I hoped it would kind of shine a light on different aspects of the novel so that we wouldn't always be talking about the same themes and the same ideas, but to notice that although it is such a slim book, it's only 50,000 words, but there's so much going on in it. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, our conversations about Gatsby tend to circle around the same ones at the expense of many of the other ideas and aspects of the book. And that was what I wanted to try to draw out. The other obvious point to say is that how much of the book parallels his own life and experience, and not even just the experiences he was going through and the people he knew, but it's you know set in the exact same geographical area that they were living in. Mm. The you know the east and west egg is clearly a parallel of the Great Neck on Long Island yeah. where they were spending their time. So yeah. it does seem crazy to suggest that the whole thing must be a fiction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, and I mean, nobody really suggests that, but at the same time, then they say, but it's not very interesting to yeah. talk about Great Neck or to talk about what he was doing. But to me whether it's interesting or not depends entirely on what you say about it. So there are certainly some uninteresting things to be said about mm. it and there are certainly some uninteresting things that have been said but I hoped that if I worked really hard at it maybe I could say some interesting <laughs> things about it. And yeah, so what Fitzgerald, he later wrote in an essay that he described their decision to leave for France at the beginning of 1924. So they, they moved to Long Island at the end of 1922 and they lived there for about 18 months and then in May of 1924 they sailed for France. And as many people know, he ended up writing Gatsby in the south of France. Mm -hmm. And he later wrote an essay about that decision to leave for France and he said, we decided that I would take the Long Island atmosphere that I had familiarly breathed and materialize it beneath unfamiliar skies. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very, very recent history. He was writing about his own experience only two years later and trying to crystallize his sense of what modern America suddenly looked like and to use the notion of the gentleman bootlegger as an exemplary kind of representative figure of this modern America that was emerging. And so my goal was, in a sense, to use nonfiction to see whether I couldn't do something similar, except that it wasn't familiar to me. Could I also recreate that Long Island atmosphere? But I hadn't familiarly breathed it. So um, I needed to use history and I needed to use uh, research and I needed to use imagination to try to do that, but to use nonfiction to try mm -hmm. to come at it to understand better what that atmosphere was that he was trying to recreate. And on that subject, if you're talking about the idea of a biography of a book, it's interesting that this book is subtitled The Invention of the Great Cats. Thank I mean, you for noticing a, that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very deliberate word. What, it what is, do you mean by that? It is a very deliberate word. And I use it because it is the word that Fitzgerald uses twice in the Man's Hope outline that we were discussing. Mm -hmm. He says that... The, so the murder at the end uh -huh. of the novel, I won't spoil it for your listeners, but there was a murder at the end of The Great Gatsby. And he says that the murder was invented and he says that the funeral of Gatsby uh -huh. was invented. I thought it was a really interesting word for him to be using about his own memory of the way that he wrote his novel that that he was using the word invented rather than imagined or fictioned or, or uh -huh. you know that whatever it might have been but to say it's invented and I maybe I'm pressing too hard on the word but Fitzgerald also cared deeply about individual word choices and he always said that he insisted on reading meaning into things so I think that gives me permission <laughs> to pay attention to the words that he used and of course for a writer like him the only thing that matters are words you know in terms of art 
And so words are everything. And so this notion that it was something that was invented, I became really interested in because invention, as he knew, invention once upon a time in the Renaissance uh, meant exactly the same thing as discovery, which mm-hmm. I actually think is really interesting. And so for me, it's a, it's a kind of, to me, it was asking a question about what's the relationship between invention and discovery and, and how do we, what do we know about how art is invented and what mm-hmm. does it mean to say that art is invented? See, I, I looked at that on a much more simplistic level than that. In the, 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 the other aspects of that outline list, you know, the Dwans and the Swapes and mm. the whatever, were based on real events and the murder and the funeral were ones were he made up. Absolutely, and I think that's absolutely what he meant by that. And I think that that, and that is what interested me about it was that precisely so if you look at it in reverse what that implies is that nothing else is invented right mm-hmm. it implies that only those two chapters are invented and that the rest of it is somehow very closely based on history mm-hmm. or you know actual experiences but then one of the things that became really interesting to me was that the murder it seems to me was in some ways not invented and the funeral that he does invent you know claims that he invented in a really uncanny way prefigures his own mm-hmm. and so even the things that are invented that he states in this outline are invented actually have this remarkable relationship to real life and so there's a sense in which the novel the great gatsby is almost has this kind of magnetic attraction to to the life around it that it can't ever quite be read apart from those contexts and given that, and this is sort of the other reason why for me the question of context became so important, we were talking earlier about the myths around the novel, but those myths are about context. People uh-huh. love the context of The Great Gatsby. Everybody wants to know about the Jazz Age. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to know about Scott and Zelda. And yet nobody's knowing anything very accurate anymore. And so it seemed to me that I was like, okay, we do keep talking about the Jazz Age. We keep talking about prohibition, but we're recycling the same myths and the same misunderstandings. And so I wanted to try to say, okay, well, if we're going to do that, let's at least get our facts right and talk about what the context really was. We'll talk about why the murder wasn't possibly an invention once we get into mm. the third part of the show. But for now, let's go back to that uncanny mm. funeral. And um, I guess let's look at the critical reception at the time to The Great Gatsby. Because as usual in his life, Scott was in for a massive disappointment when it came out. And going further than that, onto as you said, his sort of very sad decline in death. There's a fact in the book that no matter how many times I read it, I just find it so amazing and difficult to believe, which is about the sales of his work in the the time of his death. So just tell us Mm. those things. Yeah, so the year that, um, I know it's so heartbreaking, (laughs) Um, the year that Fitzgerald died in 1940, um, he saved all his royalty statements, and if you go to the archives at the Princeton University that still has his papers, you can look at his royalty statements, which is really quite a thing in and of itself. And um, and so there I was flipping through his royalty statements, and in the last year of his life, um, his final statement shows that he sold exactly nine copies of Tender is the Night, seven copies of The Great Gatsby. And I take a a slightly um, vindictive pleasure when I sometimes tell this to to audiences in Europe and they said, oh, well, that's because, you know, Americans didn't really understand what it was, but it did much better in Britain, didn't it? And I get to say, no, I'm afraid he actually sold none of his books, sold any copies outside of the United States at all in the last year of his life. So it wasn't just Americans um, being too stupid to appreciate a genius among them. I'm afraid nobody did at that point. So seven copies of The Great Gatsby were sold in the last year of his life, and it had been put into the modern library collection, and it had to be taken out because it didn't sell, if, if you can imagine such a thing. And then the really amazing thing, symbolically, is that his um, his final royalty statement was for $13.13, and he, and he was in such a, a streak of bad luck that it's just kind of extraordinary that that could have been the total, but it was. 
And so he absolutely died thinking that he was, I've already used this phrase, but it's so painful that he wrote to Zelda and said, my God, I'm a forgotten man. And he was, and it wasn't until after his death that Gatsby came to be viewed as a masterpiece. So he only gets the last laugh if we believe in an afterlife. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, something else we'll get onto a bit mm. later on is the sort of critical mm. reappraisal and, and the continued life of the book. But what I find so stunning about this is not, this is not somebody who laboured away in obscurity for mm. years and mm. was discovered after his death. Mm. He was a celebrity. They were the biggest celebrity couple that, that you know, really, that the, this was the, the start of the celebrity era, you know, mm. movie magazines and mm-hmm. things. These guys were the, the, the biggest celebrities mm. in the world, you know. In, well, they were certainly in there. I mean, they're up there. I mean, I mean, they're at the same time as, as um, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, uh-huh. who are bigger stars, and Charlie Chaplin. But so the movie stars are a little bit bigger, but they're certainly probably, uh, are certainly up there with the most famous writers. And mm-hmm. one of the things that um, Zelda kept a little clipping from those early years that said, something like, you know, we're accustomed to this kind of attention to movie stars, but to see it given to writers like Scott Fitzgerald uh-huh. and his wife Zelda is really something new. And so they definitely were, um, they were feted, they were celebrated, they were they were very popular. I mean, one of the things that people forget as well is that he, had, he and Zelda had an enormous amount of charm when they chose to exercise it. And they were both very beautiful. And so they were very, very well liked. Um, they were very popular. And, and they, you know, they kind of traveled in the best circles and, and and, uh, and they, for, for a long time, they really lived the high life. But there are also a real cautionary tale. I mean, there's a real decline and fall in that mm-hmm. story. So, yes. Yeah, so, as you say, it isn't just a, it isn't a more familiar story of, of someone whose art is only, you know, a Van Gogh or something, whose yeah. art is only uh, recognized after their death. This is somebody who was celebrated. For, but the, the real irony is that from our point of view, Fitzgerald was celebrated at the time for the wrong books. Uh-huh. And the books that we admire, they didn't admire at all. So Gatsby and Tender the Night, which we think are his two masterpieces, were the novels that didn't do very well. And his first two novels, which we think are pretty forgettable, The Side of Paradise and, and Beautiful and Damned, were the books that they really loved. The influential critic H.L. Mencken, who was one of the most important critics of the mm-hmm. 1920s in America, when he reviewed The Great Gatsby, he basically said it's okay, but he said it's not to be put on the same shelf with this side of paradise. So from our point of view, it gets it exactly backwards, you know, Even precisely Mencken backwards. Get it wrong. Yeah, Anyone got it very wrong. Yeah. Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Sarah Churchwell about her book, Careless People. So Sarah, you've mentioned a couple of times the murder. Another large strand of this book is basically the story of pretty much completely forgotten now, but at the time, I guess, a huge tabloid called Celeb, a double murder of Eleanor Mills and Edward Hall. So tell us the story of this Mm. couple and what happened. Mm. Just at the same time as Scott and Zelda were moving back to New York and about to rent the house on Long Island uh, and and start all the parties that would would so influence Gatsby, at the same time, as you say, there was this double murder that uh, kind of gripped America and it broke just as they were returning turning in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is about 50 miles west of New York, and actually just up the road from Princeton, where Fitzgerald had studied as an undergraduate, the location was one that he was familiar with. Two bodies were discovered in a field, and they'd been shot by the head, uh, shot, sorry, they'd been shot in the head, and and they'd been, the bodies had been staged, they'd been laid out side by side, um, the man had his hand under the woman's head, 
and she had her hand resting intimately and suggestively on his thigh, and their love letters had been scattered around the bodies, and his calling card was propped against his shoe. So the killer presumably, we would think the killer presumably wanted the authorities to know who they were and, mm-hmm. and what their story was. The authorities didn't quite work that out. They, they made Keystone cops look efficient and organized. And But what happened was that it turned out that this couple who had been murdered, were they had been having an affair for uh, at least three years. Each of them was married to somebody else. And um, but they'd been carrying out this pretty flagrant affair. Mm-hmm. And um, New Brunswick, it's still a conservative time. People think again of the 1920s as being very flamboyant, but this is the early 1920s. And so the mores are just starting to shift. And New Brunswick is a middle class and conservative place. The man in, in question was also a minister. He was a rector. And I, I have a little bit of fun about the fact that he didn't have much rectitude. But um, so that, of course, also, you know, increased the scandalous nature of their liaison. And so somebody had murdered this couple and clearly the motivation seemed to be about sexual revenge, um, about infidelity because of the way the love letters were there, the way that the bodies were staged. Unfortunately what happened was when the bodies were found, um, they were found by a young couple. The bodies were found in a field outside of a notorious lover's lane and there was another young couple in a notorious lover's lane in the small hours of the morning a few days later um, who claimed they were out mushroom picking but of course they were in the lover's lane for the same reason that people usually go to lover's lanes in the middle of the night. Um, And they stumbled across the bodies, which was a great misfortune for both of them because it proceeded to, to destroy their uh, their lives. And they reported the bodies, and the news started to spread that these bodies had been found. And so sightseers started, gawkers started to, to congregate, as they will. Um, times haven't changed so much. But the difference then was that the police made no effort to cordon off the scene. They were just kind of local cops. And there was no procedure. There was no sort of sense of of what one should do in such a case. And unfortunately, the local cops and the local county physician who was called to the scene, they didn't have a coroner and they didn't have a medical examiner. Well, they did have a coroner, sorry. They didn't have a medical examiner. Came to the scene, allowed all of these gawkers and sightseers to just mill around and to interact with this crime scene in a way that we all would find, you know, completely incredible. And so they were allowed to pick up the letters and read them and drop them. And so who knows if anybody took any away. They were allowed to pick up the rector's calling card and drop it. The authorities, I can only use the word authorities with you know great irony. Um, they they didn't take any photographs, they didn't interview anybody, they didn't they didn't even take draw a, a picture of what the bodies were like, uh, you know, how they were laid out. So the crime scene was so instantly and totally contaminated that there was no possibility that they were ever going to get any physical evidence. So at that point, the only way they were really going to make a case was if they had a confession or an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. So they tried to get both. So Basically, they then, um, because this became a scandal and it became so obvious to everybody how um, absurdly they were mishandling, you know, this really violent murder. And um, and then it turned out that they'd gotten all kinds of things wrong. And so they actually, the, the doctor who was at the scene missed two of the three bullet holes in the woman's head. And they were in the front of her head, not even in the back of her head. So he missed bullet holes full in her face. And you just think, how is that even possible? Um, he also missed the fact that her throat had been cut from ear to ear. This slipped his attention. And it only came out when they actually exhumed the bodies. So the bodies of this unfortunate couple were buried very quickly because they'd been decomposing in the field in September for a couple of days. And then they had to be exhumed because there was this growing rumor that there were actually more bullet holes in her head, partly because so many people were around the scene who were able to see how many bullet holes she had in her head. And so, the, um, as I say, the, the physical evidence was so destroyed that the authorities were not really ever going to be able to, to make a case. So at one point, they tried to pin it on the poor couple who found the bodies. That story was so ridiculous that even they had to concede that that was not going to hold up in court. And then they proceeded to um, to try to indict the, the minister's wife. I mean, basically, 
looking at it now, we can see that the only two reasonable suspects are either the minister's wife or the woman's husband. Mm-hmm. And so you have to believe, in order, as the authorities eventually tried to convince um, a couple of juries to do, that this um, Edwardian minister's wife with her hair in a bun and, and who wore these kind of, you know, um, old-fashioned, I mean, she basically looks Victorian, um, <laughs> that she uh, colluded in or, in fact, herself shot her rival full in the face three times and then slit her throat or connived in uh, having her throat slit and covering it up. And what became very interesting to me about this case, uh, well, there are a couple of things. One is that details from the case make their way into Gatsby, in particular the novel that um, Nick Carraway reads in Myrtle Wilson's flat at the end of chapter two in Gatsby Mm -hmm. called Simon Called Peter is a novel that figured very heavily in the coverage of the case. And it was, it was in fact, Eleanor Mills's, um, who was the, the female victim, it was her favorite book. And the minister gave it to her, and it was seen as, it was seen as a very uh, kind of salacious bestseller. So the analogy that I've used in talking about it is, is it's as if today, imagine a, a murder, a double murder of a couple who were lovers, where she had been reading Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. and the murder seemed in some ways to mimic aspects of Fifty Shades of Grey. You can uh-huh. imagine that the press would go nuts for that, because mm-hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey is already news worthy in and of itself. And so if you have a murder that also seems to be following, mm-hmm. to par- be paralleling that novel, and that's what happened with Simon Called Peter, and it makes its way into Fitzgerald's novel. And there are some other details from the case that make their way into the novel. And it seemed to me that very clearly Myrtle Wilson, and particularly her husband George, mm-hmm. are based on Eleanor Mills, and particularly the press descriptions of Eleanor Mills's husband, James Mills, who is a dead ringer for George Wilson. Mm-hmm. So it seemed to me that, um, that certain aspects of the case make their way, not in any kind of one-to-one correspondence, but are, are transformed and reimagined, and but are there as part of the milieu, even if that isn't the case, which it may not be, but I think it's pretty strong, the parallels with Myrtle and, and George Wilson. But the other thing that the story to me, uh, the story of, of the murders of Holland Mills to me, brings to our understanding of The Great Gatsby, I hope, is that it shows, what I hope it does is kind of, I was talking earlier about my hope to shine a light on different aspects of The Great Gatsby. We all focus on the glamour of the novel and mm-hmm. on it, and on the parties and on the magic and the enchantment, but it's also a very dark novel and it's a novel that is also about poverty and about class resentment and about these kind of sordid lives lived on the margin of wealth. And that is a story that absolutely comes through in the coverage of the murders of Hall and Mills. And so my hope was that by using that story as a context, it would help us see, it would help us focus on different aspects of The Great Gatsby and kind of throw those into relief, as it were, and not necessarily to make a case that this you know, murder mystery must have consciously influenced Fitzgerald. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but that... It shows us things about his world that we've forgotten and we don't understand, and it hopefully sets a different kind of tone in thinking about Gatsby and and reminds us that it's actually a very macabre novel in certain kinds of ways Mm -hmm. and a very dark novel as well. As we've already mentioned, Scott didn't live to see his own critical reappraisal. He died thinking he was a failure. And, well, Zelda did start to see, before her own terrible tragic ending dying in a fire in a mm. mental institution she did begin to see the, the critical reappraisals let's talk about 
when did that start mm. to shift? Mm. So after Fitzgerald died, um, we've mentioned his friend Edmund Wilson, who by that point was a very influential literary critic. And Wilson was of the opinion that the unfinished manuscript of The Last Tycoon was worthy of publication, and he thought that it deserved an audience. But it was unfinished, and it was brief, and so in order to bulk out an edition, he published it in 1941 with The Great Gatsby as a, as a double a bonus gift for you know any um, buyer. And that actually is, is really what kind of triggered the reappraisal people, because it was Wilson, influential critics paid attention, they started rereading. And by that point, it's 1941, World War II is in, is in um, full gear, if that's not the right word, but anyway, I mean, it's, you know, uh, um, uh, raging at that point. And America has lived through, at that point, a decade and more of depression, and America's just starting to, to emerge from depression because of, of course, the economy created by uh, the war industry. And so they had now the perspective and the um, distance to see on rereading Gatsby what Fitzgerald had gotten right. Mm -hmm. The problem when the novel came out, and we haven't really talked about this, but when the novel came out, it wasn't very well received. And, and one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to show over the course of the story, why that would be. And that the fact is, is that because it was viewed at the time as being so close to its historical sources, they dismissed it as mm -hmm. just a tabloid tale. They said, this is just, um, this is just what you read in the newspapers. This is, you know, it's like reading Hello Magazine. Why are we supposed to take this seriously as a novel? And they could see it was beautifully written, but... The analogy I sometimes use is, is that because they saw that the characters in it as being so definitionally trivial, it's as if we got a novel today that was really beautifully written about the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. And you would just, I think most people would think, why are you wasting all of this artistry on these essentially trivial and vacuous people? Mm -hmm. This cannot be a great novel because it is not about great people. And that was their, their feeling, but it was particularly because it was so clearly modeled on these um, tabloid stories and, and tabloid figures that they couldn't take it seriously seriously as art. But the other reason why they couldn't take it seriously as art is that or, or they, they weren't in a position to recognize what we see as its greatness is that it was a prophetic novel. It was absolutely prophetic about where America was going and what America was going to be like. And by definition, you don't know if a prophecy is right until Einstein has proven it correct. And so by 1941, rereading the novel, they were suddenly in a position to see uh -huh. what it was that Fitzgerald had actually predicted and that he had understood that the party was going to come crashing to an end. But in 1925, they were in the midst of the party. They didn't, they didn't think the party was going to end. It was boom was going to last forever. And of course, it's only once bust comes that you start to <laughs> see what it was that he understood. And so a, a real reassessment kicks off at that point. And over the course of the 1940s, Fitzgerald's reputation starts to build and build. And influential critics, including not just Wilson, but also uh, Lionel Trilling and Alfred Kazin, very important mid-century voices in America, start to champion him as mm -hmm. a great writer. And by the late 1940s, he's made his way into university syllabi. Um, he's being taught in the schools, particularly Gatsby. And by the early 1950s, the first biography starts to emerge, the first critical study of him um, by Kazin. And also MAs and PhDs are starting to, to write theses about him. And then you know that somebody's really canonical. And so that once the scholars get going, then it's official. He's become you know, a canonical writer. And so by the early 1950s was when he was kind of uh, entrenched. So it took about a decade. But he could, of course, have, despite the, the critical appraisal, the academic appraisal, have gone off, you know, been ghettoised as an academic yes. novel and a curiosity and, mm. and forgotten. Yet the popularity of the novel has continued to grow. Nowadays, a lot of people will cite it as the greatest American novel ever if not one of the greatest ever novels. So I guess I want to talk about why 
it's so popular and beyond well perhaps we should also talk about uh, it's, a, it's a crazy question but what's it about <laughs> it's often described as being a novel about the American dream mm-hmm. now this is a concept that didn't even really exist at the time that, exactly. that Gerald wrote it yeah he, he kind of helps bring the American dream in, into uh-huh. existence um, in this novel the notion of America as a land of opportunity in which one's uh, success would be measured by one's character and not by one's social condition is of course as old as the founding of the United States as this kind of social experiment so that's not a new idea but the phrase American dream is not not a phrase that is available to Fitzgerald and his contemporaries. They're simply uh-huh. not using it. It's not a catchphrase. And it doesn't become one until 1931, until the Depression. And it's because of a, um, an American historian called James Truslow Adams, who writes a book called The Epic of America, in which he says, he's the one who really coins the phrase, and he says, the American dream that, which I just described, the American dream that you could, you know, by through hard work and determination, that you could um, make something of yourself... He says that dream, which has always been with the nation, is now under threat because of the Depression, which of course it was. And it sparks a real debate about, um, much as is happening in America right now, the parallels are really quite extraordinary, that when the economy shudders to a halt, Americans start to ask with great anxiety, what about this dream that every, everybody that are of equality and opportunity and, and what is going on? How did we get it so wrong? So we're now echoing almost exactly, precisely the conversation that they were having in the 1930s over this idea of the American dream. And Fitzgerald anticipates that by six years in Gatsby. In fact, he even uses the word dream to describe Gatsby's own hope of what America could be. Mm-hmm. He says that the dream is, is behind him in the dark fields of the Republic. Um, the sense that America is already, by 1925, and this is where Fitzgerald is so remarkable, that he's already seeing America as a broken promise, mm-hmm. as a failed dream, as Gatsby's green light that will always recede before him, but he will never, ever capture. And this kind of will-o'-the-wisp idea that, that it, you know, you keep chasing it, but it, it will always elude you. And the notion that that was already... What interests me about the idea of the American dream, not only that Fitzgerald anticipates it, but that it's only ever discussed as a failure, right? So when you start to articulate the American dream, it's because something has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that the, that the story starts to emerge. And that's what's so interesting about Gatsby, is that Fitzgerald got there first. He sees that there is a dream, and he sees that the dream is a lie and a myth. And that's what the story is, is really capturing and, and encapsulating. And, and at its heart, that I think that's absolutely what the novel is about. But it communicates that, it conveys that um, with such power and such poignancy and such beauty that there's this sense that the heartbreak of needing that dream and, and the, the importance of hope, so that it's not simply a novel about disillusionment, it's also a novel about the importance of illusions, mm-hmm. that you have to have your illusions, you have to have your hope, um, that hope is in itself a kind of artistry and, and that that is Gatsby's greatness. His, his greatness lies in his capacity for hope, but therefore, you know, the greater your capacity for hope, the greater your capacity for disappointment. And then in that sense that he is the exemplary American because he so represents that archetypal American experience of having very, very great hopes and having them very, very greatly disappointed. And that that's true not just of individual Americans, but that it's true of America itself. That then that's what Fitzgerald widens out to say at the end of the novel is that America itself, you know, was always conceived of as this great hope and it has always been a great failure. Fitzgerald, like so many great American writers of his era, ended up or spent some time doing sort of hack work in Hollywood Mm. to pay the bills, to pay his liquor bills, basically. (laughs) 
ironically, it seems like almost every attempt to film The Great Gatsby, and I think there's been at least five or six attempts, they never seem to be successful. And I wonder why that is. Why do you think it's such a difficult novel to film? I actually think it's an impossible novel to film. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's a novel about the fact that reality inevitably disappoints us. Uh It's about the fact that our imagination is greater than the world around us. It's about imagination as itself an art, uh, the artistry of, of, you know, what we can, the architecture of our minds, that sense of wonder that Fitzgerald is so good at capturing. So people uh, uh, often blame Daisy for being inadequate uh, as a, uh, what's the word I want, as a, um, the recipient of, of, of Gadsby's dreams and hopes. And she is inadequate. And, and that's very true. But there's also a very real sense in the novel in which nobody was going to live up mm-hmm. to Gadsby's expectations. Nobody was going to be good enough because his imagination is so great. And I think we have exactly the same experience when we watch the novel, which is that nobody is as good as the Gatsby that we have in our heads. And so what Fitzgerald does, which is so remarkable, is that he makes the manner of his telling of the story is utterly consistent with the theme. And that's one of the reasons why the novel is so powerful and also so can be so condensed and so brief, is that on the level of the sentence and on the level of his extremely poetic language, he is enacting precisely the theme of the story about the fact that our imagination is better than reality. So for example, he does not physically describe any of the characters. Uh, there's almost no physical description. The only character who's physically described is, by no coincidence, the one that he describes as the most limited. Mm-hmm. So she is lim- she's literally limited by being defined because we know exactly what Jordan looks like. She is little, she's androgynous, she is, is tanned, um, she has hair the color of an autumn yellow leaf. He says that twice, and she has gray sun-strained eyes. So we actually know pretty well what Jordan looks like. Um, so, of course, Baz Luhrmann makes the decision to hire a six-foot-tall, dark-haired woman, so <laughs> who knows? Um, but um, she's actually the only one. Tom Buchanan is an impression of muscle and bulk. He's a shifting shoulder. He's a thigh. We never find out the color of his hair. We never find out the color of his eyes. We don't know how tall he is. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Gadsby is a smile. And again, we don't know anything else about how he looks. We know what he wears. That's the other thing we know. We know about his pink suit and we know about his silver shirt and his gold tie. Or maybe it's a gold shirt, a silver tie, anyway. And Daisy has different colored hair at different points in the story. So at one point she has yellow hair. At another point she has dark hair. At another point her hair looks like blue paint on her cheek in the rain. So it's not clear how yellow hair could look like blue paint. And so, you know, one can argue different points about that. But what it means is that none of these characters are pinned down. They're all ineffable in an important kind of a way. And Nick Carraway is the least described, but we have absolutely no idea what Nick Carraway looks like at all. We get no physical description of him whatsoever. So that any human being is inevitably going to be disappointing because what Fitzgerald's done is opened up our imagination to let fly Mm -hmm. and we don't have to pin them down in our heads. So I think that's the main reason why the novel really can't be filmed because it's not, nothing is going to be adequate to our kind of fabulous imaginations um, about it. I just don't think you can do better and worse jobs and for the most part um, I think the film versions have been remarkably inadequate. I I certainly think there could be better film versions that, that were more alert to some of the the effects of the novel and and some of the beauties of it. But that's the other reason, of course, is that the prose of the novel is so lovely 
Well, actually, there's two other reasons why it can't be filmed. One is because the, the gorgeousness of the prose is extremely difficult to translate uh-huh. into visual terms. And there was a, a critic in The New Yorker, I think it was Anthony Lane, but it might have been somebody else, who put it very beautifully, I thought. He said, the reason that Gatsby can't be filmed is because it's already found its perfect form mm-hmm. in the novel. And that's it. But the other reason is that what makes the novel really, really great, as opposed to just beautifully written, is that passage that we've been talking about at the end of the novel when it opens up and becomes the story of America. And that is Nick's meditation and it's it's so difficult to film that no film has yet ever tried to do the whole thing mm-hmm. but that's where a lot of the greatness of the novel lies so they have to keep cutting out the best part yeah, and so you just sort of think this just isn't going to work and so you're you are left with a superficial story about superficial mm-hmm. trivial people having superficial parties and none of the depth and the grandeur and the beauty and the, and the poignancy manages to make its way through but I think that's also really important because beyond Two things that you said there. One thing, you know, about the characters are not described adequately enough so nobody can ever film a version that better than the one we can make in our own heads. And also, I think, I think the idea of the language is really important, particularly Baz Luhrmann's. When you do a film where half of the book is narrated by somebody, there's going to be huge, unexpurgated pieces of Fitzgerald's text and then the and bits in Lur- where in it isn't. Case, in Lerman's case, on the screen. Yeah, he literally yeah, yeah, puts yeah, it on the yeah, screen. Literally on the screen. <laughs> and then the parts where it isn't are so clunky. They slap you around the face. You know, it's so obvious yeah. which parts. Even to somebody who had not read the book, the, the bits that aren't written by Fitzgerald leap out at you. Yeah. Also, I think the fact that they just, like you said, massively miss the themes. I mean, Lerman's film screws the end up <laughs> terribly <laughs> badly. And the other thing I noticed with both, I watched the Jack Clayton, the, mm. the, the Francis Coppola written mm. version recently, and in preparation for this, of course. <laughs> and um, both of them, the Baz Luhrmann one, not quite as badly, but both of them just decided to dispense with the fact that Jordan's a cheat, yeah. which seems to be a, a major theme it's of really her character important. all the way through the novel. It's really important. And I mean, well, the Lerman version dispenses with Jordan almost altogether, which I think yeah, is, a, yeah. is a good decision. I mean, no disrespect to the woman playing the part, but I think she's dreadfully miscast. And so they basically just get rid of her. She doesn't r- really feature in the film at all. And I think she is important because it is a novel also about cheating. It's a novel about infidelity, about fidelity to dreams and about fidelity to America and to, and to promise and to hope. And of course, fidelity to to love, fidelity to another person, sexual fidelity. And so the fact that these characters are all dishonest mm-hmm. is deeply important. And if you miss that, uh, again, you're, you're, you're kind of missing the point. I mean, the, the Lerman um, ending, I, I totally agree with you. I was really struck by the fact that they retained, they, they made the decision to retain um, one of Fitzgerald's lines, which is that Nick, it's just as he goes says the novel is, is um, winding to a close and, mm-hmm. and Nick is um, look he says he, he looks at Gatsby's huge incoherent failure of a house once more Lerman kept that line but he cut the word failure so he has Nick look at that huge incoherent house once more and I thought well that just exemplifies it there it is in a nutshell you don't want it to be a failure mm-hmm. um, I actually think that the Lerman film is the version of the story that Gatsby himself would have made uh-huh. um, it's not the version that Fitzgerald would have made it is a peon to the vulgar he actually thinks it's all great. He doesn't think it is vulgar. He thinks it's fabulous. So he th- all the parties are wonderful, and he wants Daisy to think the parties are wonderful, but then the story doesn't make any sense. And I've said this about the Clayton as well, about Robert Redford. Both of them do this, partly because there seems to be this real need on the part of dramatic adaptations, whether on stage, screen, TV, what have you, to turn Gatsby and Daisy into a, a, a Romeo and Juliet story, an unrequited, uh, not, sorry, not an unrequited love story, a requited love story in which they are star-crossed lovers who are, uh-huh. who are not meant to be together. 
But in fact, it's an unrequited love story. That's actually what it's about. Daisy doesn't love Gatsby enough. That's the whole point. And so if you actually make Daisy love Gatsby, and if you make Gatsby classy, Mm-hmm. as the Robert Redford version decides to do in, in a really inexplicable decision as far as I'm concerned. So you have Robert Redford. I've said this before. I will say it again. I will keep saying this until I die. It's Robert Redford. He's perfect. He's absolutely fabulous. And he's unbelievably rich. And he's Robert Redford. And so he's classy. He's tasteful. Even his pink suit is tasteful. Everything is fabulous. Well, if she loves him, why on earth doesn't she go off with him? There's absolutely nothing to mm-hmm. stop her. It doesn't make any sense. So there has to be something to stop her, i.e. either she doesn't love him enough and or uh, something, you know, about him puts her off. At least in the Lerman film, they understand that enough to have Gatsby's thuggery. And DiCaprio is, uh, is for my money, far and away the best uh, screen Gatsby yet. So although I don't think much of the Lerman film overall, I think DiCaprio is a very good Gatsby mm-hmm. and he's worth seeing it for. To make him thuggish and violent and frightening, then at least it gives Daisy a reason to back away from him, even though uh, Lerman still wants Daisy to be in love with him. But he wants Daisy, Daisy loves the parties. She thinks they're fabulous. And I think that's because Lerman thinks the parties are fabulous. But in the novel, they're vulgar, they're silly. Mm -hmm. And and the tawdriness starts to show, and Fitzgerald's very careful to strip that away. So the first party that we see at Gatsby's house in chapter three is the party of enchantment and gorgeousness. And Mm -hmm. it's all wonderful and heightened and beautiful. But the second party which is in chapter six he strips all of that away and the tawdriness shows if you're paying attention but Lerman doesn't want that to be there and so to me it was so telling that he removes that idea of failure and just calls it a huge incoherent house because he doesn't want it to be a failure but the point of failure is absolutely critical to the emotional and the and the conceptual impact of the novel I've been talking to Sarah Churchwell and we've been talking about her book careless people murder mayhem and the invention of the great Gatsby And that's out now from Virago Books. So, Sarah, thank you very much for spending the time talking to me today. Thank you, it was a real pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Residence 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.